This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to the 177th episode of Self Work. I can't really believe that. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began podcasting about three and a half years ago with a couple of things in mind, mostly to try to introduce therapeutic topics to people who wanted to listen, who might already be going to therapy or just have been initially diagnosed with depression or anxiety and are curious for answers, but also to a third group that might really think that going to therapy is still about weakness. And I hope in the stories that I tell that you'll see that therapy itself is an incredible experience and takes a lot of courage. So welcome to Self Work. Today we're going to be talking about sleep and sex and how to balance those two needs. But we're also going to try to understand about how what happens in bed can influence your entire life, how couples communicate about sex and libido and sleep. How many times have I heard a couple argue about whether or not they're having enough sex? One will say, I'm too exhausted the other feels rejected. Both feel unappreciated and hurt. I've heard this discussion slash conversation slash intense fighting so much. So I'm going to offer some tips that are not only about getting good sleep, but what I hear from experts and couples themselves about how they solve sleeping issues, how they balance different libidos, and how they talk about their sex life. There was a study done several years ago that tested several different factors to see which ones might lead to greater life satisfaction and sense of happiness. The two that were more powerful than money, sexual satisfaction, being content in your sex life, and sleep, getting enough of it. Now that's an eye-opener for sure. The listener email today is from someone who wants to know how to talk with her spouse about abuse she suffered as a child. I'll give her my best answer. I had a patient the other day tell me that she couldn't listen to self-work because my voice put her to sleep. So if you have that problem, try to stay awake for this episode. But let's talk about sleep and sex. All of us have had something that caused a sleepless night, a night where you tossed and turned. Or when you woke up at 2 a.m. and couldn't go back to sleep. If you're a couple, maybe the two of you don't sleep well together. And that can cause irritation, anger, frustration. And then sometimes even getting in bed together can have a tension about it. Because sleep itself becomes more difficult. And deep sleep is the way our bodies and minds rejuvenate and restore. Then there's also a trust factor. Trusting someone enough where you can actually sleep deeply beside them is something that some very lucky people have, and others deeply desire. So today we're going to be talking about the importance of sleep and rest in a relationship and how to balance this need with sexual pleasure and desire. Please note that I'm not a sex therapist, but I've talked to a lot of people about their sexual relationship over the years. Actually, I hear that some therapists never touch the subject of sex, which I think is a huge oversight. I know sometimes it's harder to talk about, but so important to do so. Let's first talk about libido, or level of sexual drive. Dr. Pat Love, a psychologist in her book, Hot Monogamy, found through her research that when people first meet, 
they're biologically geared for procreation. It's what made us continue to actually be as a species. We felt sexually attracted to one another because in order to save ourselves, we needed to procreate. And so we did. Interestingly enough, our libidos seem to match. And we're in libido heaven. And this actually still happens in 2020. It's not necessarily about procreation, but it's what's left over from our biological and genetic heritage. So what happens nowadays is that the person with a higher libido may lower theirs a bit, not consciously, and the person with the lower libido raises theirs a bit, again, not consciously, and voila, it seems like a perfect match. But what happens over time is that everyone's libido returns to their more normal state, and then we all know what can happen. So much blaming and sense of rejection or sense of obligation or confusion about who likes what if you're able to talk about sex at all. Then there are women and men who've been sexually abused, and obviously, or perhaps not so, that can greatly govern how they experience a sexual encounter. If they're having to fight being triggered, then that can cause terrible problems, not only for the victim of the abuse, but for the other partner who loves him or her and doesn't want to hurt them. Parenthood changes a lot about our sexual relationship, and certainly will if a couple doesn't pay enough attention to their intimate life. Sometimes even marriage itself seems to change a couple's sexual relationship. Maybe sex before marriage was really good, but something's changed now that you're committed to one another. Body image can be huge. One woman in my practice said she couldn't date after her divorce until she had her bed body back, whatever that was. And just aging, when you no longer have anything perky about yourself, it may cause you to feel differently about sex. And of course, there's erectile dysfunction and menopause and all kinds of problems post-menopause. Then, of course, there's emotional issues. Grudges can be held and sex withdrawn. I've worked with many couples who rarely had a sexually intimate relationship for years, and it seemed fine to them, but also building was a huge resentment in one or the other. Let's not underestimate either the idea that some people don't know how to really tune in to someone else. So foreplay, often a must for women to be aroused, doesn't happen. Or the realization never occurs that not every physical experience between two people has to be sexual. It can be about the importance of touching and being touched. There's so many issues in our sexual lives, and we haven't even touched on affairs or sexual abuse within a marriage. Almost all of these deserve their own episode. But this one is about finding a balance between resting, relaxing, and playing sexually. I want to tell you a story. This one's true. Most of the stories I tell are true. Sometime post-menopause, my doctor and I thought it would be a good idea for me to take a little bit of testosterone. My level was low, so it appeared that a boost would help me out in lots of different ways. It was one of those hormones that was compounded by a pharmacy, so I picked it up the next day after my appointment. Three days later, I called that same doctor. My sex drive was off the charts, and my whole body felt sexual in a really weird way. He first said, well, maybe you're just getting used to it, but I said, no, something's not right. Sure enough, he checked, and the pharmacy had given me the same amount of testosterone that they would normally give a man. It was as if I'd been experiencing what a man experiences, or someone, anyone, whose libido was really, really high, man or woman, and it opened my eyes to more understanding. My libido had never been low, but this was a whole other experience. So what did I learn in that short period of time? That our hormonal differences may be hard to understand, but they very tangibly exist 
And instead of labeling your partner as cold or demanding, you've got to understand that labels simply aren't helpful. Dr. David Schnark, S-C-H-N-A-R-C-H, who's a renowned sex therapist and psychologist, and I'll include links to a couple of his books in the show notes. I heard him speak years ago now. I called him in this the most stimulating speaker I'd ever heard. He wasn't sexually stimulating. He was just really out there. It was nine o'clock in the morning and he was shouting out F-bombs. And again, this was a long time ago. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. Ranks right up there with my first Mardi Gras and getting handed a Bloody Mary around that same time. (laughs) But on to Dr. Schnark. What I remember from a talk he gave years ago and something that I've used in my own practice is the idea that the lowest common denominator shouldn't govern a couple's sex life. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that the person with the lower libido shouldn't be in charge of how and when a couple is intimate. If one person decides once a month on the fourth Saturday is enough, that's not right or fair. But the higher expectation, or as he would say, the denominator, shouldn't either. If you think about it, many things are like that. If one of you loves Mexican food and the other is kind of meh, then how do you compromise? How many times a month do you enjoy a taco? Of course, a good intimate sexual relationship is more vital than that, but you get my point. If either the higher or lower expectation or desire wins out, then there may be acquiescence while inwardly someone is very frustrated or resentful or there's just silence. You put up with it. Neither breeds trust or understanding. So when you have these differences in libido and interest in sex, what can you do about it? First, talk about it. Don't make assumptions. One woman I saw hadn't had sex with her husband for several years and just assumed it wasn't important to either one of them. She'd gained weight and also assumed that was a problem as she carried a great deal of shame about her body. Then, much to her amazement, he had an affair and she was stunned. She lost all the weight but actually her weight wasn't the issue at all for him. For years, he'd begun to believe that he wasn't important to her. She was happy with the kids and her work, that they were good parents together, and that's it. All the while being silent about the effect that having no sexual intimacy was having on him. So assuming your partner is satisfied or isn't with your sexual life is a big mistake. And it's commonly made because so many of us feel funny about talking about sex. But I promise you, the assumptions are going to kill you. So it's important to say, you know, I want to just review our intimate life. Let's pick a time and a place because maybe I'm making some assumptions that aren't true and maybe you are as well. So second, you can use what you find out in those discussions to begin to agree on what's not happening that you'd like to have happen. And this could be in any intimate way, emotionally as well. Or what's happening that doesn't help you feel that you're desired or desirable? If this is an individual issue, then you can commit to doing something about it yourself. You can get into therapy. You could exercise, which is good for arousal all by itself. You can get enough sleep, and we're getting to that one. You can share parenting and domestic chores more, where there's more time for the two of you to actually have time together. And very important, you take the time to be together as adults, and you don't talk about the kids. That's the rule, even. I often ask couples what they remember about going out to dinner when they first met. They usually describe that they were attentive and wanted to know every detail about this newfound, incredible person. Now that you've been together a few years, you can lapse into only talking about the kids or your to-do list, and that is awful for the relationship. This conversation may not be easy to have, 
So please have it with kindness in mind and non-defensiveness, if at all possible. If that's not possible, the two of you go to a therapist to talk about this issue with them acting as a guide or a buffer. Now, here's where sleep comes into the picture. Remember the research study that showed that both sleep and sex are most important to people if they're going to have a sense of happiness and contentment? So we're going to go into some info about sleep because it's important to know. The sleeping issue can be a very pragmatic part of this conversation, but it needs to happen. And hopefully this info about what exactly is happening during sleep may make you realize that you don't simply just check out when you sleep. There's some significant things going on. Let's go briefly over it. Basically, there are two overall stages in the sleep cycle. There's what's called non-rapid eye movement sleep, called non-REM, and rapid eye movement sleep, or REM. When you get in bed or lay down to sleep, your body normally will begin to relax. And interestingly, as you begin to do that, you may even feel sudden jerking as your muscles spasm a bit. That's called a myoclonic jerk, a term that for some reason I've always been able to remember. So when it happens to me at night, I don't freak out. Oh, that's my myoclonic jerking. The first part of the cycle is non-REM sleep, which is composed of four stages. The first stage comes between being awake and falling asleep. The second is a light sleep, when your heart rate and your breathing regulate and body temperature actually drops. That's when you pull the blanket up around you a little bit more. In these first two stages, you can be more easily awakened, especially in the first, which is also almost a preparation for sleep. But the third and fourth stages are deep sleep, and it doesn't take you too long to get there. And it can be very hard to wake you up. And these stages are vital to a sense of rest. In fact, it used to be thought that this non-REM sleep wasn't as important as REM, but it's truly just as or even more important for learning and memory and being rested and restored when you wake up. Now, as you cycle into REM sleep, the stage of sleep when we dream, the eyes move rapidly behind closed lids and brain waves are similar to those during wakefulness. Breath rate increases and the body becomes temporarily paralyzed as we dream. Now, if you've ever tried to wake up, you're sort of coming out of a dreaming state or you're going into a dream state and then you wake up and you can't move, it can be very frightening. It's called sleep paralysis. This happened to me fairly recently and I was screaming and trying to get my husband's attention, not actually screaming. I was you know, doing this thing. But it can be very frightening. So sleep paralysis is also, it runs in families. It's not the same as a sleep terror, but it can be pretty frightening. So how is all this information important? Because remember when we were talking much earlier, when the typical fight is, I'm so exhausted versus, but we haven't had sex in forever. This is the most common battle that I hear. There's a need for sleep and there's a need for sex. So, Continuing in the discussion you're having, you both need to talk about the emotional disappointments or frustrations you have about sleep. For example, if you're someone who struggles with going to sleep and you tend to stay up longer, then your partner may feel as if they're missing out on a nighttime ritual that involves only the two of you. Again, some people can feel that going to sleep together creates trust and vulnerability and a sense of closeness, even with no sex involved. Maybe it doesn't mean that to the other person, but this is something to be talked about. Another very practical issue when you think about this information about the sleep cycle, think about the very fact that most deep sleep comes earlier in the sleep cycle, like within the first four to six hours. So it might indicate that you really shouldn't be awakened by your partner who is sexually aroused when they get in at one o'clock a.m. after a business trip. 
or really waking up anyone at any time of the night is likely not a great idea. Or let's say your partner is very sleepy and their body is shutting down, then asking them to stay up and have sex before going to sleep is probably not going to be all that great. It's something interesting that the research showed. Sleep is not like hunger. You don't have to eat when you're hungry, but when your body reaches a certain level of tiredness, it will make itself go to sleep. So one of you may need a lot of sleep. One of you may need less sleep. One of you may have different sleep habits. All of that needs to be talked about and how it affects your sex life. My bias is always to come up with an agreement. But when I say this, this is where I often hear, but if we plan it, then it doesn't feel spontaneous. My answer is usually, well, the way it's happening now or not happening isn't working. So why would you continue with that? Coming up with a plan where there's compromise and kindness and give and take, each individual working on whatever issues are theirs, and then the couple work together as well, that could all create a sense of togetherness. Whether it's about getting kids out of the bed or taking overnight trips together or whatever, when the plan is followed, it creates trust. So now let's talk about the third thing you need to do. Again, the first was to not make assumptions. The second was to have this very difficult conversation, but maybe when you start having it, it won't be as difficult as you think. But there's something else about sexual arousal that I think is a very interesting thing, especially with long-term relationships. Let's talk about how you stay more sexually interested in your partner. Is it because you feel safe with them? Is it because you believe they're attractive? Maybe at first. But again, going back to Dr. Schnark, he says those things aren't enough for long-term arousal and attraction. He identifies actually four drives of sexual desire that also have their own neurotransmitter equivalent. Before Dr. Schnark's research, healthcare professionals had considered there were three primary drives of sexual desire each with their own accompanying neurotransmitter. There was lust, being horny, driven by testosterone. There was romantic love, driven by serotonin and norepinephrine. Then there was attachment, that feeling that your needs for connection, safety, and validation are met. And this is driven by oxytocin and vasopressin. In Dr. Schnark's writing and research, he contends that there is a fourth drive that is even stronger than the other three, maybe even those three combined which is our urge to develop and maintain a solid sense of self. What does he mean by a solid sense of self? A lot of therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists believe that attachment, the feeling of being understood and connected, again, driven by that oxytocin and vasopressin, is the be-all, end-all of what we want to seek in our partnerships and commitments. But Dr. Schnark says that that doesn't leave enough space for partners to have their own identities away and apart from one another. He'd say, in fact, that's why sex with someone new is so exciting. You don't know what you're going to discover. He says, and I quote, Attachment theory reduces marriage to a quest for safety, security, and compensation for childhood disappointments. We've eliminated from marriage those things that fuel our essential drives for autonomy and freedom, and it becomes a trap that actually prevents us from growing up. Instead of infantilizing us, marriage can and must become the cradle of adult development. Now, what does all that mean? Basically, he's talking about not building dependence on one another, or what some people call being codependent, but not creating complete independence either. And he uses a word that his research has found is the fourth thing that drives sexual desire and behavior, and that's interdependence. Now, not all in psychology would agree with him, but it has been my observation over the years that a sense of interdependence, and that's a word I actually use a lot, 
both an awareness of what you each count on in one another and awareness of what each gives in the relationship and then gratitude for it can truly aid desire, even when libidos are naturally different. In my view, that's because there's awareness and appreciation for what each one brings to the relationship. So you more naturally want to be intimate, to be close. You're discovering things about life and yourself all the time, and you do this with the help and cooperation of your partner, and so your partner's doing the same. You're both interesting and interested, and that can lead to more desire for connection with this person you see engaged and fulfilled in their own life and in theirs with you. You know, it's kind of interesting that after someone finds out about the other having an affair, the sex between the couple can become much hotter and more passionate. Not always, but it happens enough to warrant attention. Could it be, according to Dr. Schnark's theory, that for these two people, they actually get out of the psychological rut they've been in and see each other with fresh eyes? I'm not sure, but I know it does happen a great deal. So let's talk about, again, this balance between sex and sleep. First, don't make assumptions that your sex life is fine. It may be uncomfortable to talk about sex, but there's a lot to be learned out there. There are books, all kinds of books. Both Dr. Love and Dr. Schnark's books could be very helpful. Second, you have to have a discussion that takes into account each of your needs and desires for sexual arousal as well as for sleep. Some of that conversation needs to be very practical and not taken personally. Honesty is vital, and some of it may warrant compromise and be seen as an opportunity to build trust and a sense of give and take. Third, trying to be aware and recognize that a sense of interdependence can make you appreciate and honor the bonds between you, and it can hold a sense of gratitude and love. So don't acquiesce. Don't agree and give in. Don't stay silent. Talk with one another. Discuss. Compromise. Come up with a plan. Engage with each other in supporting each of your identities. And hopefully, you'll find a great balance between your need for sleep and rest and your need for play and sexual intimacy. I knew I was running late on this podcast, so I picked a really short one to share with you today. She says, I recently found your podcast and feel so blessed that I did. Your kindness in your voice and insight is so helpful. Thank you. I was sexually abused as a child. My husband is aware, but it bothers me and affects me more than I let on. I often dissociate during intimacy because I don't want him to have to worry about it. I hide most of my feelings, and I don't know how to talk to him about the dark feelings in my head. Could you do a podcast on how to talk to your spouse about these difficult subjects? Thank you for your podcast. I'm a fan. This comes up in couples therapy so much about how to talk to your partner about past physical abuse, past sexual abuse. And I did an episode on it a long time ago, but I think I could do one in a lot more detail, especially about dissociation during sex with your partner, because that pulls you out of the moment. And that's not what you want, but that may be the only way you stay safe. So this is what I tell her. Hello, I'm so glad you become a listener. That's a great topic, and you bet I'll talk about it. I'm sad that you've experienced such abuse in your life, and also know that talking about it openly can be very healing. I have one podcast already in production, but I'll add this to the list. With a warm welcome, Dr. M. I simply read this because I want you to know that I do read your emails, and I do want to respond to them. I want to 
know what you need for me to talk about. So my next podcast will be on how to talk to one another about sexual abuse in your past and how that's playing out in your current relationship. And actually, we'll touch on physical abuse as well and neglect. Thanks so much for being with me today and for the ratings and reviews you're leaving. I just can't tell you how grateful I am. If you've read Perfectly Hidden Depression or you're reading it, that's my most recent book. I thank you so much and I hope it's being very helpful. For those of you who don't know, I believe strongly that a perfect looking life can often hide a true depression and emotional pain that has been suppressed for so many years that sometimes people don't even realize it's still there, except they grow more lonely and more despairing, and something in their gut is telling them something's wrong. But they have so much shame about even asking, even admitting they have a problem, that they never talk, and they never reveal, and they stay silent, sometimes for too long. It's called Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. I hope you'll get it. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and your local bookstore will be able to order it. There's lots of ways to reach out to me. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You also can get on my website, which more and more of you are doing, at drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can subscribe. And if you do, you will get a weekly newsletter from me holding the blog post for the week as well as the podcast episode. So it's a really easy way of keeping in touch with me and kind of knowing when the podcast is coming out so you don't have to worry about downloading it or whatever. I also have a closed Facebook group. We now number over 2,000. It's very diverse, people from all over the world, both men and women, all kinds of problems and struggles, but also we're supporting each other with strength and empathy and laughter. It's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. I try to give people journal prompts to do and talk with people who are there but there's also incredible advice from other people who've walked in your shoes. So thank you for being here today. I hope this podcast episode will help you and your partner talk about both your need for sleep and your need for sexual intimacy. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.